Hey, it's Antoinette, and welcome to another episode of the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. Today's episode is all about cervical mucus, a topic I am really excited to talk about. And my guest today is Megan McNamara, who is equally passionate about talking about all things cervical mucus. And today we're going to tell you everything from what is cervical mucus to why it's important for your fertility and your hormone health. Megan McNamara is a certified fertility awareness educator and the founder of Famtastic Fertility. Megan teaches a 99.4% effective natural birth control to women globally through her online fertility awareness course, Second Nature Cycles. So without further ado, let's jump right into our interview today. Welcome to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast, a podcast about female empowerment through menstrual cycle health, the true heartbeat of your hormone status. With each episode, we'll explore the foundations of hormone health with science, soulful, and heartfelt conversations, a dash of sass, and feminine pizzazz. Our dream is to arm you with exactly what you need to be an unstoppable female force, ready to achieve all that your heart desires and embrace your inner goddess. And here's your host, naturopathic doctor, birth doula, fertility awareness educator, hormone enthusiast, and lover of pretty things, Antoinette Falco. Welcome, Megan. It is so great to have you on today's episode. I cannot wait to talk about all things cervical mucus because like yourself, I'm also a super nerd about this topic. So I can't (laughs) wait. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I also cannot wait. I'm like obsessed with this topic. (laughs) Well, let's let's jump in. And the question I like to ask first is to have you share a little bit more about what led you to do the work that you do, uh, what got you into being a FAM instructor. Yeah. So what led me to FAM years ago, I was actually just like exploring YouTube one day and uh, someone that I was subscribed to, she was talking about natural birth control. And I was like, natural birth control? Like, what is this? And so I watched the video and she was talking about the book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, of course, which a lot of people who are familiar with FAM or start to explore fertility awareness, they're bound to stumble across that book. Um, And so I was like, wow, this sounds really interesting for me. I just growing up, I always felt like, like hormonal birth control, like wasn't right for me. Like it just didn't sit right with me. Um, and so I, I just always knew like, okay, I'm going to have to figure out something else, but I didn't realize that fertility awareness existed (laughs) until I stumbled across it. And so once I did, I got the book and I, I read it in college and I was like, so excited to start charting. And I started charting of course, with like a fever thermometer as opposed to like a a basal one, which you're supposed to use, but I didn't know the difference yet. That's okay. (laughs) And I got like four days into charting and then I just like gave up for like a year because I was doing it alone and I didn't know anyone else who like had even heard of this. And at the time, this was also before like I had a smartphone, so I didn't realize that apps existed to help with this type of thing as tools. So I was really like going at it totally alone. And um, a little bit over a year later, I wanted to like recommit to it because I was like, all right, I know at some point I'm going to need to you know, get serious about this and really use this. And luckily at that point in time, I thankfully... I found out that instructors and educators existed in this field, which I like didn't know before. (laughs) And as soon as I did, I was like, all right, I'm going to take a class. 
And I actually took like two different courses and I became really just fascinated by all of this. And the more I charted, the more I realized like, you know, number one, again, so many people out there just like me, they don't realize that fertility awareness educators exist. Um, and they maybe don't realize the value that we can bring to help them learn the method. And I mean, for me, it was a world of difference from going at it alone and trying to self-teach and then totally giving up to working with an educator and like really, um, really just thriving with that. And so like long story short, I, after that whole experience, I was like, okay, I want to try and be that person for others who can be an advocate for this method and dispel myths about it and just have this conversation and just open it up to people um, so that people are just empowered to talk about it and they, you know, can have like real open conversations about it. Um, and I just wanted to be another voice in that field that could help educate others in an accurate way. And so I've been, I've been teaching my course um, and, you know, been really lucky to work with uh, lots of people around the globe. And that's kind of what led me into it. And I'm just at this point where I'm still obsessed with it, still fascinated by it, and just really happy to be here and talking about it. I love hearing the stories that are, you know, it's very much was a passion for you, a curiosity. Mm. You wanted to know more about, I'm sure your body and yes, this natural birth control method that nobody talks about. Mm -hmm. And we hear so much, this, you know, so many myths, so many stigmas about it and doctors aren't talking about it, you know? Right. And that becomes a huge, you know, I think a disservice for women because as we're going to get to, it's about so much more than just avoiding pregnancy. Like there's so much to learn from this mm -hmm. method and we're going to, we're going to dive into that for sure on this episode. But I want to start also by dispelling some of these myths. So if you could share with me some of the top three myths you've heard and um, how you can, how we can debunk them for listeners, because I yeah. think this is a very important place to start in the conversation. Absolutely. So I think just like when people hear about fertility awareness, they hear natural birth control. And I think for so many people, there's this like little voice or sometimes big loud voice in them. That's, that's kind of parroting and repeating what they've probably been taught their whole life, which is that can't work. That's not a real thing. You know, you can get pregnant anytime, anywhere being on hormonal birth control is the only quote unquote responsible thing to do. So there's just like all these stories that we were told growing up or even as young adults or just adults um, about our bodies, about our fertility. And often they're so intertwined with fear. And I think for people, one of the biggest, it's not even like a myth, and I, I will get into the, the top, my top three myths in just a sec, but it's kind of like just a mental block that kind of just can, can cut off the conversation for people before they really even start to be curious about it or explore it. And so I just want to kind of invite any listener who may, you know, be having that voice inside them to kind of just listen with, with open ears and 
I mean, really when it comes down to fertility awareness, we're talking about the physiology of the body and it's the same science that hormonal birth control and all these other birth control options were developed from. So it's a completely valid choice for people. And I think that people are often curious about it. They want to learn more about it. But again, that mental block kind of comes up. And so I invite people to kind of start to break that down. And one of the biggest myths to get to these, like these big ones that we often have come up, I would say the top one is conflating fertility awareness with the rhythm method. And Mm. it's always, always, always like, it's like a punch to my gut. Anytime I see an article about fertility awareness, because oftentimes it's like, okay, you, you see this article online, you're like, oh, like, let me click on this. This might be good. And then literally within the first like sentence of the first paragraph, it's always like the modern day rhythm method. And it, that's not what it is. <laughs> it's not the rhythm method. And I'll explain why. So the rhythm method that was developed actually decades ago, first with the intent to actually help people get pregnant. And, you know, for that purpose, decades ago, it was actually really helpful. And over time, people started to kind of flip that and use it to try and avoid pregnancy. And, you know, at that point in time, it was relatively effective. It may have served a lot of people. And I also feel like, you know, back then, perhaps people weren't coming up against like, the environmental factors and and modern day stressors that we have today that can contribute to so many cycle irregularities. And so anyway, they I think for a lot of people, it was a valuable tool kind of back in the day. The rhythm method, the way it works is you're basically making predictions about your, your future cycles based on your past cycles. And so what I mean by that is like, let's say you've always, quote unquote, always had like 30 day cycles. Um, Then you might say, okay, my next cycle is going to be 30 days. And, you know, that may be accurate or it may not. It really depends on how things play out. And when it comes to the rhythm method, we see that even with correct use, it's around like 91% effective. Um, That's when people are actually fitting into the, the actual parameters of that method but in real-time use, it's only around like 70 to 71% effective. And so the thing about the rhythm method is it doesn't take into account real people's actual lives. It treats people and women as if their bodies are machines that are going to repeat the same pattern over and over again, regardless of the stressors that they might face, like travel or getting you know really sick or... Some, or this some, virus and yes. the pandemic and stress that's happening <laughs> exactly. in our world. Exactly. <laughs> or an international pandemic. <laughs> like the rhythm method cannot take that into account, people. <laughs> and so the thing is, it's like women's bodies, they're they're quite sensitive to stress. And the cycle especially is some people call it like a stress barometer because often if you're experiencing some type of stressor, it's going to show up in your cycle in some way. And the rhythm method just can't take this into account. You're, you're really just looking at a calendar. You're making these predictions that may or may not be accurate. The thing with fertility awareness and with the, the symptothermal method of fertility awareness 
specifically is you're looking not at these like wide predictions, but you're looking at real-time daily evidence and data about your cycle every single day. So instead of saying, you know, oh yeah, you know, I think I might ovulate next week just based on my calendar, you are actually going to the bathroom and you're wiping and you're checking to see how is my cervical mucus today? And what is that telling me about whether I'm fertile today or not? You know, what is my temperature saying today? And then how is that backing up my cervical mucus information? So the biggest difference is like rhythm method based on predictions, actual fertility awareness charting, you're looking at real-time biomarker evidence. So I think that's the biggest difference that people literally just aren't aware of. There's this big gap in in education because like you said before, people just aren't talking about this as a valid method because it's so often put down before people really get to know the science of how it really works. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest thing um, and then kind of leading, leading away from that, uh, but it's kind of similar, is the next myth, which is that these ovulation prediction apps that we can mm. get on our smartphones are reliable and accurate. Um, and there are so, so many fertility awareness, you know, and, and just ovulation prediction apps out there, like probably hundreds or potentially thousands. I don't even know. <laughs> I just see them pop up all the time. And these apps love to say things like, you know, we'll predict your, your fertile window. And then you go into the app and, and again, it's just a calendar and they're, you know, you're just putting in your, your, your last bleed. There's no way to confirm whether or not you're actually ovulating, you know, you're not looking at any actual cycle data. And so these apps are often just a glorified rhythm method Mm -hmm. and that's not reliable. And I think like, you know, there's plenty of people who, who may like that may be enough for them, uh, you know, depending on their goals, depending on how comfortable they are with an unintended pregnancy. And that's, that may be okay for them, but for people who really are serious about wanting to avoid pregnancy and use this method as natural birth control, which is what I uh, do in my work, that's where my focus is with my clients, you know, those apps simply aren't going to cut it. And so this kind of leads into the third myth, which is that FAM can't work for people who are really serious about avoiding pregnancy. And I'll just kind of dispel that off the bat. Like I myself have used it um, for years to avoid pregnancy. And I also know many other um, people around me in my support network um, who, who never want children and they've been using it for decades um, or years to successfully avoid pregnancy as well. And so when it comes down to it, um, it, this method can absolutely work. It can be highly effective. It's just a matter of, of like how people are learning the method, how they're practicing it. And, you know, is there, is there behavior and, you know, the way that they're practicing it, is that lining up with their fertility goals of avoiding pregnancy? And so making sure that those two things match up, you know, how, what you're doing with your actions and, you know, what you uh, have as your overarching goal is really key when it comes to practicing it. So I hope that that kind of covers things and that kind of makes sense there. Yeah, no, I love the last one about the behaviors because we don't often think about the factors that influence the efficacy of any type of birth control, mm-hmm. right? Like how frequently you're using it, 
are you perfect use, typical use? Mm -hmm. Are you and your partner aligned, right? This is where I can come in very, you know, it's a very important point when we're talking about fertility awareness method in terms of do you and your partner, are both of you guys on the same page? Are you practicing it the same way, right? Those are factors that we can't fault the method for Mm -hmm. why you had an unintended pregnancy. It's the behaviors behind it. It's how you were taught. It's how you learned the method. So I think that's a very important point to differentiate for people because if you're serious about using this method, you want to make sure that you have you have learned the method correctly. You are fully confident. And in my opinion, the way to be fully confident is to, to learn from an instructor mm-hmm. who can walk you through, who can hold you accountable. Because often, I, I'm sure you get this too, you get emails uh, from clients who are like, I'm not sure if this mucus is is really that. Like, Can you help clarify? I'm like, yes, send a picture through, send a video and we'll help confirm that. And then they're like, okay, I feel so much better. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that when you're trying to cross-reference you know, something you read online or something that a friend told you or maybe in a 2D book picture. Right. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but we're going to give lots <laughs> of good stuff I know later. <laughs> it's so true though. It is so true. And I, I, I do that all the time with my clients. I, I like actively encourage them. I say, look, you know, if you're, if you're comfortable, like there's no pressure to do this, but if you're comfortable, yeah. my clients are, are welcome to send me pictures or videos of their cervical mucus to get help if they ever need help, you know, classifying it to, you know, give them that confidence. My biggest yeah. thing with working with clients is like getting them not only to confidence, but like independence with using the mm-hmm. method. I, I love seeing when like they kind of taper off with their questions and they kind of just go off and start practicing. I'm like, good, good. <laughs> yeah. But of course I'm always there, you know, if they do have questions, but that's the ultimate goal is to get people so confident and so independent with practicing it that, um, you know, they feel comfortable, you know, that's true female empowerment. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then you also said, you know, you were talking about the apps and, you know, about the modern day rhythm method. I think one could even say that using apps or using femme technology or fam technology, however you want to call it, it could, it is actually like, that's the modern rhythm method, which what people are, you know, they're, they're using an app thinking it's fertility awareness method, but really it's the rhythm method. So we're like confusing all three of those and making it just this giant misunderstanding for a lot of people. So I'm mm-hmm. glad that you broke those down and you, you explained that. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that your focus is on using FEM for natural birth control and helping, you know, you focus on those women who are serious about using fertility awareness method to avoid pregnancy. Can you share some information about the efficacy for birth control and maybe a little bit more for women who potentially are skeptical? So I know I had mentioned a couple of the, a couple of those, um, but I'd love to hear it in your words and mm-hmm. in a little bit more detail. Yeah, absolutely. So this this question about efficacy of the method. Um, so one of the most effective uh, versions of, of fertility awareness is the symptothermal method. Um, to kind of just backtrack briefly, the term fertility awareness method, that's actually a big umbrella term that includes all these other methods and subsets below it. So you actually have different methods that might be cervical mucus only that don't include temperatures. You might have methods that include uh, cervical mucus and hormone testing like LH testing. 
Um, or you might have other methods like the symptothermal method where you're using cervical mucus and temperatures um, to cross check each other. Um, and so kind of the way I frame it for people is fertility awareness can be as effective as you make it, depending on how you're charting and what biomarkers you're looking at. And so when we go back to data, we know that the symptothermal method can be up to 99.6% effective. That was done with a study, uh, I believe from 2007, from a pool of women who had learned the method with working with instructors and educators. Part of that was, you know, going through the course and also having check-ins with them down the line to check in and ensure that they were understanding things and again, feeling comfortable and confident with everything. So the method can be up to 99.6% effective, and that is comparable with, you know, most forms of hormonal birth control, as well as even some IUDs. And so you can get really effective when you're practicing it, again, when learned with an instructor and practicing it um, correctly. And to do that truly is not rocket science. It's really just about learning a new life skill. And I kind of liken it to driving. A lot of people kind of use that metaphor where if you've never driven before, it can seem like this huge, daunting, scary thing, right? You, you're in charge of, you know, driving this huge machine around that's potentially dangerous if you don't know how to do it, right? And so with driving, we know that, you know, people should work with an educator or practice driving around with their parents um, or maybe go to a driving school and practice that skill for several months before they head out on the road for real. And the same is true of learning this life skill of fertility awareness. It's, you know, a few months and uh, a few cycles of learning this method, and then you kind of can go out and practice it. And you have that life skill that's going to take you through, you know, all the seasons of life ahead of you. Um, and you can kind of uh, apply it as you need to throughout those seasons. And so, um, getting back to the, the efficacy information, depending on, on which method we're talking about, different methods have uh, different efficacy ranges. But typically, when you're only charting like one biomarker, let's say you're only charting temperature or you're only charting cervical mucus, we typically see a bit of a reduction with efficacy because we're not able to as effectively like cross-check those biomarkers and you know ensure that we really are you know accurately identifying those fertile and infertile days. And so I would say for people who are are skeptical, I always say like the more cycle data the better and and learning the method can really replace those those fears with information and facts. And we, it can be up to 99.6% effective. Um, when practiced correctly. Um, and again, it also gets back to, like you were saying before, are you on the same page uh, with your partner or partners? How are you, you know, aligning your fertility intentions and your goals with your behaviors and, and actions with your charting? So the efficacy kind of comes down to three, these three areas of number one, how are you learning the method? with an instructor? Um, or is it self-teaching? And just as a note with self-teaching, we don't really have the data on that to know how effective um, the method is when people are just self-taught. 
because we just don't have that, those studies or that information. Often what we find though, is there can be gaps in knowledge with self-teaching because the person might not know what they don't know. Whereas with working with an educator, their whole goal is to really walk you through everything and ensure that everything is um, covered. And then that second area depends on, you know, how are they practicing the method? And then the third area is what biomarkers are we looking at and what biomarkers are we charting? So hopefully that kind of covers everything. Yeah, that was great. And I love that you broke it down the different types of fertility awareness methods, because yes, there, there are many different ones. And, you know, often when I work with women, they'll, they will have been using one and then they're like, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I didn't have a good experience with that. And then Mm -hmm. that will influence their decision to learn another method. But then it's very important to know that like the efficacy of them all vary. And I love that you said it, the more data that you get from your cycles, the more evidence from your body, you'll be able to feel confident. And it does increase the efficacy of that method that you choose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love how you actually just brought that up about people changing methods, because I feel like sometimes with the field of fertility awareness, there is no one method that's, that's one size fits all. There is no one method that is perfect for everyone. And so, you know, as I was just saying, even though we know that the symptothermal method has like the best efficacy overall, like the highest efficacy rate, that still might not be the best fit for someone. You know, you may have someone who doesn't want to chart their temperatures for whatever reason. There's a lot of valid reasons as to why people might not want to do that. Or they can't. Um, Yeah. Or or they can't. Yeah. Um, And so they may do really, really well with the cervical mucus only method. I just think it's important, especially with the cervical mucus only methods to really ensure that you're learning with an educator for those, because when you're doing cervical mucus only, the level of detail and attentiveness to that biomarker get like even more detailed. And so it's just important to, you know, make sure that you're uh, really tuning in with your body there. But again, there is no one size fits all. And I say like, if people need to switch up methods, all the more power to them because you know what they've identified for themselves that hey what I'm doing here this isn't really working for me Um, I want to move to a different area where I feel more comfortable and confident and you know I may be charting a little bit differently but it's actually working better for my life I feel less stressed it's fitting in better with my life and that is a hundred percent amazing I actually love when people you know can make that decision for themselves it's amazing excellent point. And, you know, validating women in this process is so important. Mm -hmm. It's so important. Um, okay. Well let's talk about cervical mucus. Let's just get right into it. Um, I know I've said cervical mucus is like liquid gold and Mm -hmm. people laugh at me, you know, but it's, it's so true. And I would like to hear you define what is cervical mucus and how important, how and why is it important for reproductive health? Yes. Okay. This is like my favorite area. So (laughs) what is cervical mucus? Cervical mucus is basically this, this gel almost. It's a mix of water and uh, nutrients and, and filaments that you can observe throughout your cycle. It changes, it ebbs and flows. So what it really is, is It's this hydrogel produced by the cervix in response to our natural sex hormones. So throughout the cycle, um, depending where you are in the cycle, you may be at a time with higher estrogen 
And the cervix is going to respond to that high estrogen by producing what we call estrogenic cervical mucus. And that's the type that typically looks like it has more of a flow to it. It might be kind of um, white or sometimes clear in color, be really stretchy, or it might not be as stretchy. That's okay too. Um, And, you know, we also are looking at the sensation that we feel when we're going to check with toilet paper. We're taking that into account as well. And so ultimately it's this biomarker because it shows in real time what's going on with our hormones. Our cervix is, uh, you know, really sensitive to estrogen or progesterone or two different primary sex hormones in the cycle um, that we talk about the most. And so if we're in a time of high progesterone in the cycle, as opposed to estrogen, that's when we're actually going to experience like a dry up of cervical mucus and we won't really be producing any, which is actually uh, healthy at that point in the cycle. And so it's kind of this amazing window into, again, that real-time picture of of where we are uh, in terms of our hormones, where we are in terms of our, our cycle and what's happening there. The reason why it's so important for reproductive health is because it's the medium through which uh, sperm needs to travel and swim to even reach an egg and, in the woman. And so you, you, you simply can't, uh, you know, naturally have them connect if there is not cervical mucus present. Pregnancy can't happen if there is not that cervical mucus to travel through and reach the egg. And so that's why it's so key. A lot of people, when they think of pregnancy, they immediately might think of, okay, yeah, sperm and an egg, they come together. That's what you need to kind of start. But that missing factor is the cervical mucus. And it's often just like totally not talked about. Like if there's one thing that's more taboo than menstruation, it's cervical mucus. (laughs) Because people like, they don't know about it. They don't know what they're seeing. They don't want to talk about it. Um, and so it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They may say that's gross. And so to really like break down that taboo, I think like learning more about what it is, learning what it's saying about our bodies and where we are in our cycles. It's actually this really cool thing that we can observe and look at. Um, and speaking of liquid gold, like I always still get so excited when I see a sample of what we call in the method I practice, it's called ES mucus, where it's very stretchy and clear and it feels very slippery. Um, and it's just, it's like so exciting every cycle because I know that that is telling me that I have good estrogen levels. And for me, that's really exciting. Um, you know, when you've learned as much as I have about the cycle, <laughs> it's, uh, it's this really cool milestone that kind of comes up every, every time. And uh, I still don't get tired of it. So yeah, I mean, I, the other thing I just want to add in really quick, because I know that this can be a point of confusion, is cervical mucus is not the same thing as arousal fluid. And mm-hmm. it's so important because we, there's, there's often a lot of confusion there. Um, I see it a lot on, on Instagram where I often post in the past, I used to be able to post about cervical mucus really freely. There was never an issue. And in the past year or so, if you make a post about cervical mucus, 
it's likely to get censored and deleted by the platform, which can potentially put your whole account at risk if you get enough of those those strikes in your account. And what's happening there is it's that taboo coming in and it's it's that gap in education. So people aren't informed and they don't know that what they're seeing is cervical mucus. It's a healthy thing in response to hormones. They, they're assuming that it is arousal fluid and that, that it's a sexual thing. And, and in fact, cervical mucus, it's produced by the cervix, whereas arousal fluid is produced by a totally different gland, um, kind of at the base of the vaginal opening. So they're two totally different things. They have different functions. And I think for a lot of people, that can be a point of confusion. And so I just really wanted to clear up that area because it kind of, it kind of seems like, okay, that's not a big deal. But when you get to the point of this mass censorship that we see on social media, it actually is a big deal because people aren't getting access to that basic education because, you know, educators' posts are being taken down and censored, which is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that could be a whole other yeah, topic whole other on podcast. its own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for going into that level of detail. I think just understanding how important cervical mucus is to as a physical marker mm-hmm. for the hormonal cascade and the fluctuations from day to day in your cycle is, is so important in mm-hmm. any cervical mucus-based method for sure, mm-hmm. of course. Okay, so we've touched on this a little bit, but I think it's valid to go into a bit more detail. So there's lots of self-taught content available online through like Instagram or YouTube. There's also lots of books. You mentioned Taking Charge of Your Fertility. I know that was the first book that I read, which draw me to the method, which is a great book, um, that talk about FAM and about how to identify cervical mucus and they'll use specific, you know, notations. You had mentioned one, ES, and there's lots of different different notations that are used to describe mucus or Mm -hmm. descriptor words. You know, you might hear tacky, pasty, slippery, stretchy, you know, there's lots of different words. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, is there any disadvantages to having all of the different variations in that, in how cervical mucus is described or explained or even how it's recorded Mm -hmm. uh, when you have multiple different, um, different methods, different systems, um, and different, different places where that content is available for, for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like to kind of start off this question on a positive note, like I think there is a lot of value in, in the different methods, the way that they, that they break things down for sure. And really we're talking about the same thing. We're all just using different descriptors. So like in the method I practice, like you said, it's like the one that would refer to that, that watery, um, kind of stretchy, clear cervical mucus, we call that ES. And uh, that's what we call in our method. Other methods might call that peak type cervical mucus. Other methods might call that egg white cervical mucus. And where where I often come up with confusion with with people online or just other women that I'm talking to or, you know, potentially, you know, new clients that might be coming in is they often express confusion with words like sticky, egg white, creamy, 
things like that. And it's especially a big issue when people uh, don't have English as their native language. You know, I work with a lot of people internationally who, who speak English fluently, but it's not their primary language. And so when there's this language barrier kind of comes up, it can be tricky. And the other thing is these words like creamy, egg white, sticky, they can mean different things to different people, even among native English speakers. You can talk with one person over here who might say that this sample is sticky, and then their friend might say, no, that's egg white. And so when you're only using these adjectives, I think it can get confusing for people because they mean different things to different people. And so what I find to be helpful and to kind of clear up that confusion is instead of focusing on those, those types of descriptors, instead making it more objective and less subjective and, and breaking down cerebral classification in a way that is easier, it's standardized so that you're looking at the actual like straightforward characteristics of the sample that that are like measurable and not not debatable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for example, like how much does the sample stretch? That's something where you could literally pull out a ruler and say, okay, the stretch is one and a half inches. And like that's not up for debate. That's what you literally just measured. Um, and that's not something that's subjective. Um, the, th the same thing is true for like what color is the sample? Is it clear? Yes or no? And that's like a yes or no simple question. As opposed to words like egg white or creamy, again, you can have different folks um, identifying that differently and it can get a bit confusing. And so like while for some people it can be helpful to kind of um, contextualize the idea of cervical because when you're like first starting out about it with those types of words, I think when we get to the point of actually needing to, you know, correctly and accurately categorize it for the for the purpose of like natural birth control or even trying to get pregnant getting more clear and and more objective about it i think makes that whole process for people a lot more straightforward and just a lot easier yeah and there's a reason why there's systems right they've systematically been created to right. help follow like a certain um, pattern or a notation right mm -hmm. so i think there's absolutely. something to say about that mm -hmm. yeah absolutely Okay. I'm sure there's going to be some women listening who maybe don't produce a lot of cervical mucus and mm -hmm. they, you know, are learning how important it is and for their fertility and for their reproductive health. The first step is teaching women how to make the regular and correct mucus observations. And there's a system and a process to doing that because sometimes women aren't even aware that they, that this is mucus because it's mm -hmm. not something they've paid attention to. They haven't, they haven't given that awareness to in their everyday routines. Right. What would you recommend to women who, despite making regular mucus observations, are still not producing any cervical mucus? Yeah. And are there any tips you can share? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a, a point that often comes up with people depending on where they are, like what age, what stage. We often see this come up with people who are uh, recently post-birth control. And depending on what type of birth control, they may be in this area and in this experience be a bit longer or a bit shorter than others. And so there are underlying reasons why this might be happening. I think that would be my my first tip to recommend. Like 
look a little bit deeper, try and figure out why this might be happening. Other areas where this is common is during the teen years for people who are kind of, their bodies are just kind of getting started up with cycling. It's actually normal and common for teens who are just kind of starting up with cycling to have a lot of irregularities within the, that first like one to two year time frame of when they start ovulating and cycling. And so for people who are post-birth control and teens um, who are kind of getting started up with their cycles, those are two really common areas where, you know, despite checking consistently and accurately and correctly, their body may just not be really producing a ton of cervical mucus yet. Um, And the other areas to look at Um, you know, let's say someone isn't post-birth control or they're not a teen, you know, um, the other, the other question that we want to look at is, is ovulation happening? And if so, if if not, why is it not happening? What are, you know, are there other areas of stress going on in the person's life? Are there underlying hormonal conditions that might be going on? And so, you know, if, if people aren't kind of in that age or stage um, that we mentioned before, the next question would really be to look deeper. And sometimes that means connecting with a naturopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor or or a doctor who is trained and understands the links between, uh, you know, someone's chart and and their hormones to really get deeper and ask those deeper questions. Um, And so that would be my first tip to kind of identify what is going on because the, the course of, of treatment and the next steps kind of depend on that first answer. Mm-hmm. So I think probably one of the most common ones is that time frame of being post-birth control. And so it's like, okay, I'm, that's where I'm at right now. What do I do? So for people who are post-birth control, the reason why they may not be producing a ton of cervical mucus just yet is because one of the modes of action by which many birth controls work is to stimulate the cervix with, with synthetic hormones um, to create uh, lots of what's called G mucus. And it creates this, this mucus plug in the cervix. And the purpose of it is to help literally block out sperm. Like, just don't even let it in. <laughs> and so that's one of the modes of action by which uh, these different types of birth controls can work. And when people are on hormonal birth control for a year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, and their cervix is constantly being stimulated to make only that type of mucus, they're, they're, um, the other area of their cervix that makes the other type of estrogenic mucus isn't really being used. And so when people are post-birth control, there's a couple of factors. It's like, number one, their body needs to like literally get back into the flow of making its own sex hormones, making its own estrogen, making its own progesterone with those natural hormones. And then number two, the cervix just needs time, honestly, to resensitize to those hormones. And it just needs time to heal a bit and to start using those other uh, e-mucus, estrogenic mucus areas to start producing. So often for people who are post-birth control, those action steps, the biggest thing is time and patience and really, you know, holding compassion for yourself and knowing that 
you know what, it's okay that my body, you know, temporarily isn't producing a ton of cervical mucus right now. That's totally fine for where I'm at right now. Um, and what I can do is nurture my body and nourish it in these other ways, while I'm also just being patient with myself um, and loving myself, honestly. And so other ways that people can help with their cervical mucus is a lot of ways that um, go into everyday hormone balancing. So are they getting enough sleep? You know, are they getting that like seven to 10 hours of sleep every night, which for women is so, so important. It's usually like the baseline where I suggest that people start because optimizing sleep, it's like you, you don't really have to go out to buy a bunch of gadgets or food to do that. You just kind of have to um, tweak your bedtime routine. There's other things that you can do as well. Um, sleep is a great place to start though. Also looking at food and nutrition. Um, what are we feeling our bodies with? Are we eating enough to nurture our hormones? What's going on there? And also looking at other areas like exercise. Are we exercising enough? Are we really driving ourselves too hard into the ground with exercise? Finding a balance there. The number one thing that it comes down to is stress on the body. And so if we, if we can either eliminate stressors or reduce stressors, and, you know, replace them with, you know, practices that nurture the body, all of that can help with hormone balancing and it can help with that return to healthy cervical mucus production. And so uh, that's kind of the, the overarching thing. The probably the easiest, easiest tip that people can try to incorporate if they're, if they're still not seeing all the cervical mucus is to drink enough water that's one of the, the best places to start as well. So many people, they just you know, don't drink enough um, and they may not you know, kind of be on top of that throughout the day. My general, my general recommendation is to aim for um, half your body weight in ounces. And so that's typically what I aim for just to make sure that I'm getting enough throughout the day because cervical mucus is made up, I believe, of like 99% water. And mm -hmm. so if we're not drinking enough, our bodies don't have that building block to make cervical mucus with. So giving our bodies what it needs um, and then I can kind of take it from there is, is so important. Mm -hmm. Such great points. You know, it's, it's often about creating the foundation. Put right. the basic you know, eat well, exercise, sleep well, drink enough water, lay that foundation for yourself and then allow your body your body to heal because your body does have the ability to heal itself. That's one of the principles of naturopathic medicine, but also like sleep, like your body is sleep is healing while you're sleeping. So that's really important. I love that you touched on that. And it's one that doesn't get spoken in enough about bringing things back to basics and recreating balance and flow in your life so that you can have flow in your cycle to be mm -hmm. put simply. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I was just going to add in the area of sleep. I think, like you said, like it often doesn't get talked about. I think um, often with, with women's health, the immediate focus jumps to food and exercise. And those two things are absolutely important. I definitely, that's, that's totally why I mentioned them before, but you know, sleep is often like, it's, it's the first thing to go, right. When we get stressed and mm -hmm. it's the last thing that we work on because often for people, they, they may feel like they have a, 
uh, more straightforward course of, of direction if they have a grocery list to follow or yes. a supplement list to buy on Amazon or something. It feels more co- concrete sometimes. Mm-hmm. But with sleep, if you're operating on like four or five hours of sleep constantly, your body is in that state of constant sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. It's not really in a way, in a state to prioritize sexual health and hormonal health. It's kind of in survival mode. And so optimizing sleep and allowing ourselves to rest, I think are so important. And like in today's like hustle culture, everyone, it's, it's almost like they take pride in being stressed out. And I'm, I just like reject that. (laughs) I just say like no to that. Like we need to take pride in really caring for ourselves and self-care it's, it's beyond like face masks and getting your hair done and stuff. Those things are amazing. But a lot of self-care, like you said, is really foundational and setting ourselves up for success um, with, with our hormones and, and just going back to basics and really caring for ourselves deeper in those ways. Well said. Okay. So now to switch things in the other direction, let's talk about the women who maybe are producing mucus every single day. So while we know that's an atypical menstrual cycle observation because we do want to be having dry days after ovulation because that's when progesterone produces that G-type mucus, which is really important for healthy cycles. But there are going to be women, I know I, I hear this a lot, like, oh, I just, I make mucus all the time. I'm constantly mm-hmm. wet down there. So if you can explain a little bit more about what might be going on, there are possible causes that could be could be at play. I love that you said in the previous question that it's about getting to the root cause. It's about understanding and knowing what's going on. And yes, that's definitely going to apply here, but I'd love to hear from you maybe some of the more common scenarios or things that could happen or that women can start to kind of like be thinking about if that's what's going on for their cycles. Yeah. So I hear that all the time as well. It's it's a, it's quite a common thing to have happen at, at times. And what can be going on underneath the surface? Again, it goes back to our hormones often. Um, usually we see this type of pattern. It can come up with PCOS a lot um, where people are experiencing like ongoing kind of low levels of estrogen as well as some inflammation in the body. Um, that's not to say that if people experience that ongoing cervical mucus, that it's automatically a PCOS diagnosis. But often like when I'm working with clients who do have PCOS and they do that, they do have that diagnosis. Um, they may be seeing that in their cycle pattern kind of ongoing. Um, Another area where it comes up, again, getting back to that age and stage, that stage and season of life where people might be postpartum. That's another really common area for it to happen where the body is in this dance where when people are breastfeeding, they produce a hormone called prolactin. And that prolactin is always in a dance to suppress estrogen. Meanwhile, estrogen is like, all right, let's get ovulating again. But prolactin is like, nope, let's tone it back. (laughs) So they can kind of be in this dance back and forth. And so that can kind of lead to uh, patchy areas of mucus observations and, and seeing a pattern that seems to be ongoing. Other areas where this can happen is if people are experiencing a food sensitivity. 
um, or perhaps another reason for underlying inflammation in the body. Um, for example, I, I heard of a case where someone had a sensitivity to eggs and they didn't realize it until they had done, um, they had worked uh, through an elimination uh, protocol to kind of eliminate different foods and see how their body responded. And when they eliminated eggs, they found that it really helps to kind of um, optimize their cervical mucus pattern. And so that may be the case for some people as well. Um, but I think, you know, th there can be other reasons as well for underlying inflammation in the body. But cervical mucus is, this is why it's such an important indicator for not just our, our hormones, but our overall health. And so if there's something that's off going on inside the body, again, typically, you know, seeing that chronic inflammation, it can uh, show up as that ongoing cervical mucus pattern. And so uh, hopefully that kind of covers things. No, those are great ones. I'll share a little story here about myself. I have Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition of the mm -hmm. thyroid. And when I first started charting, I really noticed that I was getting like that continuous mucus pattern. Mm -hmm. And my instructor that I worked with, you know, we talked a lot about gut health and we talked about leaky gut. And for me, that's always been something that I've struggled with because it is one of the root causes for autoimmune diseases, particularly Hashimoto's. And I started noticing immediately when I was taking out those foods consistently. So it was, you know, taking them out right. cycle after cycle that I was noticing that pattern change. And then similarly to if someone has celiac, when they get, you know, quote, glutened, they'll experience symptoms when they eat gluten and they know they've eaten something with gluten. That's how mm -hmm. my body, that's how sensitive my body got in terms of my mucus observations. Like I would know, okay, I definitely ate something today that had gluten in it or, you know, some of the other foods that I was sensitive to, for me, gluten is a big one, but I would notice immediately, like it would be like later the next time I went to the washroom, like it would be that fast, which, you know, mm -hmm. we don't often think about, but it was a big indicator for me. And then that was the part that I was so fascinated with. I was like, okay, you know, yes, there's joint pain, there's indigestion, which are the obvious symptoms that, right. that you experience when you have a food sensitivity, but the less obvious and in some ways more telling because they're giving us information about our reproductive health, which is a harder area of our body to decode and understand, especially if women aren't used to having no symptoms. So yeah, mm -hmm. I love that you brought up that point. That's, that's excellent. And yeah, the gut is linked to everything, inflammation, food sensitivity, hormones. It's so important. The link with gut health and hormones, like I'm that, that's a little bit outside my area of expertise, but just from, from the research that I've read and what I've learned about it is it is so key. And this is why, like when we talk about these areas of reducing stress or, you know, looking at, at food and nutrition and looking at sleep, all of that ties into the health of the gut. And yes. all of that ties into how our body makes our sex hormones. So it's all so interconnected. And, you know, I love the work that, you know, you do as a, a naturopath looking at the whole body in that holistic way. You know, when we talk about health, everything is so interlinked. And so there is no magic bullet to just overnight fix our, our cervical mucus pattern. It's often a matter of, you know, kind of being our, a detective with ourselves and with our own body and having that curiosity to 
ask, you know, hmm, what's going on a deeper level? Like, hmm, why is this showing up? As opposed to coming at it, you know, perhaps with, with fear of like, oh my God, we might instead, you know, ask, hmm, why is this happening? And how can I get curious about kind of solving this for myself? I love you. It's not going to go away the next day. You know, it's not a quick fix, but it's about first having the awareness and Mm -hmm. then starting to collect the data. Like we've said a million times in this episode, how important Mm -hmm. our body is giving us that information and that data to understand, to be a detective, to, you know, use our cycles as, as a vital sign, which I've talked about in in other episodes, but it really is such an important, it's, it's a gift actually that mm-hmm. we as women have to be able to get a deeper look at what's going on inside our body. Absolutely. So, yay for mucus. Um, <laughs> so you do something that's really awesome. Um, well, it was an initiative that you started with a colleague and I, I have recommended lots of women check, check out this resource, but I would like you to share with listeners about the cervical mucus project and what women need to know about it. Maybe a little bit about what led you to creating this and yeah, how, how women can get access to this super awesome resource. That's going to really help them get going in understanding maybe what's going on with their mucus or if they're working with an instructor, how to have a bit more of that empowerment piece around, um, around their charting and their fertility awareness method. So they can access the cervical mucus project literally right now, unless you're driving. If you're driving, don't do this on your phone. (laughs) Um, But if you are in a safe location and you're able to, um, you can access the project. It's over at cervicalmucus.org. And it's a project that we started because I, when I was learning the method, I, I'm a very visual person and I wasn't finding like any consistent quality resources ever that I could find about cervical mucus. Like I had two books that I would refer to. Each book contained maybe 10 pictures of cervical mucus and they all looked like a little too perfect. And I was like, all right, this is kind of what I'm seeing in my own cycles, but like not really. So like what gives? And then I would try to Google images and it was just, it would always show the same like like again, like 10 or 20 images. And I couldn't like find, they all looked very like clinical and kind of like fake. And I couldn't find like any just real humans <laughs> who were sharing their actual cervical mucus. And then one one day I, I happened to be in one of the Facebook groups I'm a part of and people were sharing images in the Facebook group. But I was thinking to myself like, okay, this is great for people who happen to be in this group. But what happens to people who don't have Facebook or they're on Facebook and they just never come across it or Facebook censors all these pictures and then deletes them and then they're not there anymore. And so there were just a lot of blocks and barriers and issues that is coming up with with this whole area. And I wanted to start the project, uh, number one, to break the taboo about cervical mucus, let people know this is a healthy, normal, amazing thing that tells us about our hormones, our fertility, our health. And then two, to provide other learners who are trying to learn about cervical mucus and learn about fertility awareness with a tool and a resource to go to. So 
literally the cervical mucus project is a website where there's real people's actual cervical mucus pictures and videos. So it's a great uh, reference tool for people who are learning the method, especially like with an educator, they can go to it to get more context and see more examples. And the beauty of it is that it's really highlighting this whole spectrum of real people's actual cervical mucus. So the pictures are from real contributors from all around the world. Um, the whole project is very collaborative. Um, we welcome people who are confident in their observations to go ahead and contribute to the project. Um, and, and everything on there is these real images. And so they do show the gray area. They do show um, the observations that might be, you know, for some people a little bit more tricky to define. And these images are not like perfect clinical textbook images. They show the spectrum of real life from real women all around the globe. And so I've just been so thankful to see like random people will have come across it and then they'll connect with me later and they'll be like, oh, like I heard of this project and like, wait, that's the one that I started. <laughs> and like, it's just very interesting how it's, how it's reaching people all around. And the other thing is like, not only is it collaborative, but it's also just freely accessible. You don't need to be a member of the website, like Facebook. Um, it's not. Uh, on social media. It's a separate website, so it's not subject to that censorship. It's free of that censorship, and it's just freely accessible. You can type it in right now, cervicalmucus.org, and just go explore um, and just familiarize yourself with the different ways that cervical mucus can show up for real people in real life, and that's that's ultimately what it's all about with the project. I love that. So amazing. Thank you on behalf of all educators and women who have used that site because it is it is truly fantastic, and it really helps give women the confidence when they're first starting. And if they have questions, it's a good place to go and to get answers right away, you know, to go on that website and you, you know, you can look at it and then you can be like, okay, I feel good about this is mm -hmm. what this observation is. So mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for just shining a light on it. And I think like the more we, again, talk about cervical mucus, we're breaking down that taboo every time we have conversations like this. Yes. And I encourage the listeners out there. Um, maybe strike up a conversation with it about it, you know, with a friend, or if, you know, you have a friend who, um, doesn't practice fertility awareness, but they've asked you questions about cervical mucus in the past, just out of curiosity, maybe say, Hey, here's this website you could check out. And then maybe they could go explore. And I just think like through the power of community and conversation, it's this really powerful tool to help us break down that taboo and those barriers um, to just, again, open it up and normalize cervical mucus and normalize um, this healthy, normal thing that, you know, people who ovulate and menstruate go through every cycle. Mm -hmm. for, for sure. All right. Well, thank you so, so much, Megan, for this interview and for all of your wisdom that you shared and knowledge. I'm going to link the cervical mucus project below and then also all of your contacts and how our listeners can get in touch with you, how to work with you, or just to connect and reach out if they have questions about this episode. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share or say for listeners as like the final parting words? 
Yeah, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciated this. And I definitely encourage people, you know, if you're looking for a place to start with fertility awareness, um, you can head over to the Cervical Mucus Project at cervicalmucus.org. You can also, you know, connect with me on Instagram. I'm at Fantastic Fertility, F-A-M, like Fertility Awareness Method. Happy to chat with people over there. Ultimately, you know, when it comes to, again, this whole conversation about cervical mucus, I encourage people, you know, keep curious, keep talking about it and uh, keep these conversations alive and open. Through that, we can really connect with each other as women and connect better and deeper with our cycles. Awesome. 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 Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of all future episodes. And don't forget to check out the show notes for all guest details and your free downloadable goodies. Your feedback is important to me, so please, please leave a review so women can find and be empowered by this knowledge. If you have a topic you'd like to see discussed on the show or have a recommendation for guests you'd like to see interviewed, please get in touch by emailing the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast at gmail.com.